This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. All right. Well, if you missed the first session, it is on the podcast, so I'm not going to go back over any of that uh, information here because we actually have a lot to cover today. Uh, but I do want to ask, are there any questions that you've been sitting on since the last time that we met? It's okay if there's not. Just wanted to make sure. Is all very clear? Okay. That's good. I'm glad. Okay, well, in this session, we're going to come to what Bartholomew and Goheen call Act 2 of Scripture and the beginning of Act 3 of the drama of Scripture. Uh, it's the, really the fall and the consequences of the fall that we, we see from Genesis 3 to chapter 11. Um, now as I mentioned last time, it's important to remember as we discuss the fall that Israel first encounters Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, as Redeemer, as Savior. There's a rescue from slavery in Egypt, and that is how they become acquainted with their God. They encounter Him first as Savior before they encounter Him as Creator. But secondly, we also have to note this that with their encounter with the living God as Savior, they also come to understand that sin and evil are not original to the creation. They're not inscribed in the character of the creation itself. They're interlopers, right? They're thieves. They're, they're destroyers that have come in and invaded rather than something that's endemic to the creation itself. And that's really critical because as Cornelius Plantinga writes, the fall is not the way it's supposed to be. Not the way it's supposed to be. The way things are supposed to be, according to the scriptures and according to the experience of Israel that we have recorded in the scriptures, is a state of shalom. Now, I mean, shalom, of course, means peace, but it's not peace in the sense of a mere absence of conflict, right? It's a peace that involves the fullness of God's presence, which results in an effervescent joy, the joy of experience, of communion, with God, a communion with our neighbors, communion with the creation, and rightly ordered relationships across that spectrum. Plantinga describes it this way. I can't do better than his own description, so bear with me on this. He says, Shalom is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts are fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. The way things ought to be in its Christian understanding includes the constitution and internal relations of a very large number of entities, all the entities that compose this world. In a shalom state, each entity would have its own, its own integrity or structured wholeness, and each would also possess many edifying relations to other entities. The way things ought to be would also include an individual person, persons, a whole range of intelligent responses to other creatures. You get the point, right? It's like shalom cascades through the creation in the same way that death has cascaded through the creation and colonized territory. Shalom pervades and colonizes territory and creates beauty. It creates wholeness and integrity and delight. 
Delight is a, is a proper response to shalom. Wonder is the proper response to shalom. Whenever we encounter it, that is the involuntary, spontaneous reply of the person to that experience. That's the way things ought to be. That's the way things are supposed to be. But sin is an interloper, an intruder, a destructive force, and it disrupts, it suspends, it fractures, it trespasses on, it rebels against the shalom of God. It's hard to find exactly the right word. In fact, I think we need many words to describe the way in which the, the integrity of the fabric of the shalom of God is torn apart, torn asunder in sin. In fact, in Romans, Paul uses this language. He calls it a force or a principality. It's a, it's a power that's unleashed into the world, and it's a power or a force that enslaves us. Now, this is important to note, okay? Biological death can be evil, but it's not what Scripture means when it says death, okay? Sometimes it does mean that, obviously, but most of the time when Scripture uses the word death, it doesn't just mean mere biological cessation of existence. Biological death is actually an ambiguous reality. It can actually come as a gift at some points. It can be a mercy. Um, within, the created, so within the created realm, biological death may or may not be evil. But death, as it's expressed in Scripture, is always evil. Death understood as a power and a principality and a force is always evil. And I'm going to explain more about what I mean here in just a minute. But let me just tarry for a second with this idea of biological death. I've got a friend named Marty Pony. He lives in Austin. He's a biologist at UT Austin. And he likes to say, had there been no biological death prior to the fall, the earth would have been overrun by bacteria in about two days, right? So, so biological death itself cannot be the problem. And one kind of like false narrative that Christians have imbibed over the last couple of centuries, uh, and it really comes from an anxiety about the encounter with Darwinism, is the belief that, crea that the creation narrative envisages no animal death prior to the fall. Um, but there's really several passages in Scripture which seem to suggest that animal predation is part of the created order. When you just look at Job 38, uh, 39 through 41, um, it says, Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their covert? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God who wonder about for lack of food? And this is God speaking. So God is, answering, is asking a rhetorical question. It's, it's me, right? I provide food for the ravens. Psalm 104, um, verse 21 says, The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. What the lions eat, God provides to them. And again, uh, 27 through um, 29 of that, same, of that same psalm. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are just made. When you take away their breath, they die and return to dust. So the scriptures themselves seem to envisage a kind of uh, compatibility between animal death, animal predation, and like the, the integrity of the creation itself. And, and importantly, I think, I think this is important for us and, and instructive for us, many pre-modern Christians believe that animal predation is part of the created order as well. So Thomas Aquinas is just one example, right? He says, In the opinion of some, those animals which now are fierce and kill others would in that state have been tame, not only in regard to man, but also in regard to other animals. But this is quite unreasonable. For the nature of animals was not changed by man's sin, as if those whose nature now it is to devour the flesh of others would then have lived on herbs as the lion and the falcon. Right? I mean, so 
uh, this is thus there would there would have been a natural antipathy between some animals. So th this is a, this is important to note, right? Like, pre pre sorry, go ahead. It's a future prophecy. Okay. It's not. I mean, the, the the ecotopia of Isaiah's prophecy is a future prediction, right? It is a prediction about the eschatological state of things. Yes, and the the restoration is is um, a restoration and an extension of what was the case in the creation, right? So you know, there's, there's been a lot of uh, great scholarship on this in recent years. So like one example would be Meredith Meredith Klein's Kingdom Prologue, right? And this is a, a studied meditation. Uh, or the first part of it is a studied meditation on what would have happened had Adam remained upright, right? That there is this sense of there is a development that happens. Adam Adam is immature in the garden. And there's a development that would have happened had he remained integral, had he, had he retained integrity. And yet, uh, you know, the fall actually wrecks that and, and despoils that. Uh, so the restoration is, in a sense, a development along the same lines as, of what would have happened or what could have happened had Adam remained upright, which includes, it seems, in the future, an environmental ecotopia, right, where it's not just us being able to, uh, to interact with animals without harm, but also animals themselves being free to interact with one another without harm. Uh, Richard Bauckham's book, God, um, uh, let's see here. Golly, what's it called? Huh, sorry? Somebody say, somebody say the name of the book? Oh, no. Huh? Yeah, Richard Bauckham. It's not older. It's, uh, golly, Bauckham is his name. Um, Oh, good grief. I can't think of the name of the book. I'll send it to you later. But this, he has a great section on the Isaianic prophecies. Um, okay, so, um, yeah, I think it's instructive for us to, to recall that it's, it's not just, you know, what we can, what we can glean from, for ourselves from scriptures, but, like, what the whole Christian tradition has, has gleaned based upon its own meditations upon scriptures. Uh, and, and Aquinas is, I think, representative of a big, broad swath of that tradition that says, you know, th these two things are compatible, animal predation and the integrity of the original creation. Um, so I think we have good grounds for accepting that biological death as such is not what Scripture has in view when it talks about death. And this is important for this reason, because when the Scriptures talk about death and they mean it in this, in, in this sense of, of a force or a power, what, they're, what, they, what, what it is uh, describing it as is is kind of like a mist that drifts in and it mildews and decays every human space that, that, we, that we create and inhabits. Um, it creates toxicity and, and, uh, and a lack of health. It's, it's, uh, it's understood in, in, under the metaphor of a blanket. When you think about Isaiah, right? Isaiah talks about it as a blanket, which, which is stretched out over the creation. It chokes and it smothers the life out of every good dream. I mean, it's understood as a tyrannical king which burns and pillages and rapes every good thing until we can despair of life itself, right? Um, I mean, I think, you know, um, one of the sort of classical descriptions of Satan we see in the book of Ezekiel, right? And he's likened to the king of Tyre. And the king of Tyre was this great tyrant, right? So there's an analog between the king of Tyre, Tyre as this tyrant and Satan who has despoiled all things and ruined all things in the creation, right? So death is also this kind of tyrannical figure. Death is a conqueror. By small and great means, and its presence is everywhere. It has universal dominion. That's the way that the Bible speaks about death. But what about human death? Is human death included uh, within this penumbra of, of um, animal predation and the death of you know, microorganisms and so on? Um, there's been a lot of ink that's been spilled in history over this. But I just, let me just sum up what most, most Christian authors have said about it. Um, it's, it's, 
the, the, the sense is that the tree of life is the sacrament of eternal life for Adam and Eve, right? That is, Adam and Eve are created mortal. They could die, but their mortality is suspended so long as they eat from the tree of life, okay? So that the, the, um, the banishment from the Garden of Eden is banishment from that tree of life. It's the refusal of God to, uh, to, to inscribe humanity in eternal life in the position to which they have come through sin, right? It's the refusal to allow death and sin to have the final word. Death in that cosmic, you know, mythic sense of a force or a power. So one of the clearest ways of getting at this that I've ever heard, this distinction between kind of biological death and death as a force or power, uh, has been given by Thomas Long. Some of you have heard me quote this before. It's a really powerful passage. Thomas Long distinguishes between what he calls small d death and capital D death to get at this crucial difference between you know, mere biological death, which is ambiguous, and what the Bible describes as death as a force of power. Here's what he says. Hang, on, hang in there because it's kind of a long quote. Small d death is simply the recognition that human beings are mortal. We have a lifespan, short or long. We are born, we live, we die. This form of death marks us off as human and not divine, and it is a mixed blessing. On the positive side, our mortality teaches us to count our days that we may gain a wise heart. The fact that we do not have infinite time, infinite options, and infinite opportunities to loop back around and do things over makes our choices significant. On the negative side, this death holds a threat above our heads every day, and tomorrow we will be gone, forgotten, nothing. This creates the anxiety of impermanence, which in turn stimulates us to rebel against our mortality. So in short, awareness of our mortality both prompts us to wisdom and prompts us to sin. So you see, like, biological death is an ambiguous phenomenon. Capital D death is a different reality from small d death. That's death as a force or a power or a principality. It comes toward us never as a friend, but as an alien and destructive force. There is nothing natural about it. It is our enemy, and it is God's enemy. Indeed, Paul calls it the last enemy. Death in this form is out to steal life from human beings, but it does not stop with individuals. Death wants to capture territory, to possess principalities. It desires to dehumanize all institutions, poison all relationships, set people against people in warfare, replace all love with hate, transform all words of hope into blasphemy, replace all love with hate, fuel the fires of distrust, to lead the people to the depths of despair, to shatter all attempts to build community and to make a mockery of God, faith, and the gift of life. That's death as a force or a power. That's the death that Scripture is predominantly concerned with. It is the death that has been unleashed upon the world in sin. And I, I think all of us here know the power of the capital D death, right? Um, Long goes on to tell the story about uh, an ex-lawyer turned kind of activist in the 1970s, a guy named William Stringfellow. And he was invited to come to Harvard and speak about the reality of the principality of death, right? And its reign, the universal reign over humanity. And uh, he was supposed to speak, number one, to the divinity school, and uh, then secondly, to the business school, right? So he goes to the divinity school first, and he's like, he's he's kind of like prepared two different talks, right? Like one of them, like for the divinity school, he's kind of like tried to demythologize this a little bit and talk about, you know, like just kind of the, the depravity of human willing and so forth without any reference to the transcendent. But like when these divinity school students hear this, they're like kind of yawning and like talking about archaisms and 
you know, all this kind of stuff. And so it just like doesn't make an impact. But when he goes to the business school and he begins talking about death as a, as a principality, everyone is like wrapped. Like they're like all in. And then they're like making lines to come talk to him afterwards and like telling him examples, like example after example of where they've seen this in the social realm, right? Um, because this is reality. This is reality for human beings. Um, this, is, this is the world we live in. And this is the death that sin unleashes into the world. This is the death that scriptures are most concerned about. This is the death that ruins and ravages God's good creation like some horrific beast. And this is the death that slithers its way into Eden to tempt Adam and Eve. So Bartholomew and Goheen point out that we know in retrospect from the apostolic preaching and interpretation of this text that this serpent that was craftier than any of the other animals is Satan. Right? Revelation 12.9 says that the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. Right? So we know by the attribution of John who this is. But even John's identification of the serpent raises like so many questions. Right? Why an ancient serpent? Why that image? I think this actually has to do with the ancient Near Eastern origins of this text. And if we understand something about those origins, we'll understand this text better. The Old Testament scholar John Walton says that serpent symbolism was rich in the ancient Near East. And the original audience would have made certain kinds of associations with serpent imagery that are not natural for us. So in the tale of Adapa, for instance, it's an ancient Mesopotamian text, the serpent Anu is known as the guardian of demons who live in the netherworld, right? So there's this demonic association with serpents already there in the ancient Near East. And in Egypt, there are serpents everywhere. From the crown of Pharaoh to pictures painted on sarcophagi, and there are references in the Book of the Dead to serpents as horrible enemies that are on the path to the afterlife. And these creatures are understood as symbolic in the Egyptian mythology of both wisdom and of death. So you get this kind of resonance of the knowledge of the tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? But it's knowledge that's detached from the wisdom of God. Um, it's, it's knowledge that we can grasp for ourselves. It's more like a dark magic than a knowing and, and a loving cultivation of the good creation of God. That's what the, the, tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil offers to us. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil offers death. So these two kind of polarities are there as well, not just in the Egyptian mythology, but right there on the pages of the Old Testament. And in the Egyptian mythology, the god Apophis was a serpent of chaos who tried to swallow the sun as it rose every morning. Okay, So this deep, kind of chaotic, threatening creature. Um, and, and it's a creature that's cosmic in its dimensions, right? So on the one hand, there's little serpents that, cr that crawl across the ground, right? And that are threatening. They can, they can kill us. But also from that, a projection into the cosmos of these, of these great, terrible, terrifying gods, right? In the Egyptian mythology. So we know already from this ancient Near Eastern context that this serpent is not a mere serpent, but a symbol for, for a powerful godlike entity, a chaos creature, as scholars describe it, right? Um, and this, this chaos creature is the enemy of God. And indeed, we find this idea elsewhere in the Old Testament. This isn't the only place that the serpent appears, right? Uh, I mean, if you look at Psalm 77, 12 through 14, it says, But God is my king from long ago. He brings salvation on the earth. It was you who split open the sea by your power. You broke the head of the Leviathan, the serpent, in the waters. It was you who crushed the head of the Leviathan and gave it as food to the creatures of the desert. And again, in Isaiah 27, 1, a kind of future projection. In that day, the Lord will punish with his sword, his fierce, great, and powerful sword, Leviathan, the gliding serpent, Leviathan, the coiling serpent, who will slay the monster of the sea. Now, what's that sea language about? I think that's actually a reference to the, the Babylonian myth, Enuma Elish, 
where uh, the, the god Tiamat, it's a great dragon, a great serpent with legs, right? A serpent with legs, um, who is involved in a great battle with, with Marduk. And when Marduk kills her, he, he cuts, cuts her body in half and places half of it in the sky and half of it in the sea below. And her, her body remains alive in a sense and able to inflict all kinds of chaos. So the seas are turbulent, and they're chaotic, right? And the Israelites pick all this up, right? And they turn it to, to proclaim the revelation of God, right? God is sovereign over Leviathan. God is sovereign over this ancient servant, this, the serpent. The serpent is not the all-powerful one. It's the living God. It's Yahweh Elohim, right? So it's important, I think, for us to understand these things in context so we understand these are not arbitrary. These are not arbitrary symbols. They're, they're powerful, meaningful symbols if we understand them in their original context. So um, what, what can we say about this serpent? What does it signal to us? I think it's important on several levels. First, as Augustine pointed out in the 4th century, the fall is not first and foremost a human reality, but a cosmic one. It's an angelic one. Something has happened within the divine council which has caused part of the vast company of angels to defect from God and to seek to frustrate all of his purposes for the creation. That's the first fall, as it were. Many attempts have been made to understand this deep mystery. How one who is before the throne with all-seeing eyes. By the way, let me permit me an aside real quick on angels in the Bible. Angels are terrifying, right? They're not cherubic. They're not sweet little things, babies with wings. Not at all, right? Like the first chapter of Ezekiel, they have four faces. Like they're enormous, four faces, four wings, right? And then in Revelation, six wings, eyes everywhere, right? Like too many eyes, super creepy, right? <laughs> like, and in and, uh, and, and Daniel 4, they're called the watchers, which to me is like, I, I don't even know what to do with that term. Like I think it's a good thing maybe, but it's also kind of creepy, right? Like the watchers, <laughs> Right. Um, so, so angels are these, these, these mysterious creatures who are all-seeing, all-knowing, right? I mean, and, and they, they, they are ever before the throne of God. So there's this deep mystery. Actually, this is the profoundest mystery. The profoundest mystery is not why human beings fall. It's how these creatures who are intimately acquainted with the presence of God could fall, right? So there's been, you know, as you might imagine, many attempts to reconstruct how this might have happened in Christian history. I think, you know, Milton's Paradise Lost wins for the deepest and most imaginative reconstruction. That's my vote. Um, but this is, this, is, this is critical for us to understand. How could Satan be here? Well, it's because there is this first fall that we don't have described until the very end of the, of the, of the Bible in Revelation. And secondly, I think it's important to note that, uh, that, again, in relationship to the ancient uh, Near Eastern context, that the craftiness of the serpent is incredibly important. The characteristic that serpents have that's understood widely in mythology of being crafty uh, is, is really critical to understand why he's able to persuade Adam and Eve to, to fall. Um, and, and that craftiness is related to the status of the serpent as a chaos creature. So Walton says, deception, misdirection, and troublemaking are all within the purview of chaos creatures. So we find the serpent here engaged in the act of deception with Eve. So the, the, the form of the serpent is extremely appropriate for Satan, who is the deceiver, right? I mean, elsewhere, of course, he's called a prowling lion waiting for whom he can devour. But here in this context, where Satan is not just conqueror and destroyer, but also deceiver, the serpent is the appropriate image, the appropriate symbolism for him. The first thing that Satan does is to alter the command of God in his initial question. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Right? It's a misstatement of the command. What's the original command? 
Anybody remember the original command? No, not, no, he doesn't say don't touch it. Um, well, can they eat from any trees in the garden? Yes, they can. They can eat from every tree in the garden, right? Except for which one? The tree of the knowledge of the good and evil, right? And it's just don't eat, right? Does it say don't touch? It doesn't say don't touch, right? That's Eve's own misinterpretation. So this is critical, right? So we see uh, Satan's own misdirection with his misstatement of the question, which elicits Eve's own misstatement of the command. You must not eat from the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. A little clause added on to the end, but critical because the structure of Eve's heart has now been revealed. It's not loyalty to the commandment of the living God in relationship with God that's being expressed, but rather a taboo. Now look, here's what a taboo is. A taboo is a kind of prohibition, right? It's a kind of commandment not to do something. It's something forbidden, but it is a prohibition whose justification we can no longer remember, right? It's an arbitrary, not a living prohibition. It does not emerge from a vital, ongoing relationship. The prohibition, as it was initially given, was rooted in a desire for trust and love and intimacy. But it has become re-rooted in Eve's heart exclusively in the possible consequences that might flow from the action. And that's why she's extended the scope of the commandment. Do you see that? Do you grasp that? It's, it's subtle, but it's, it's incredibly important. So this is why Augustine says that before a fall happened in action, a fall happened in the heart. It was a falling away from relationship with God before there was a transgression of the commandment. I think that's absolutely critical for us to understand. Not just to understand the story and understand how does sin come into the world, to understand like the first commandment, right? Have no other gods before me. It's a, it's a command to let the, the love of the Lord our God be first and foremost in our hearts. What's the Shema prayer say? Who's got that memorized? Not in Hebrew, though. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? That's the first commandment because it's the first commandment that's breached. Before Eve sins by transgression, by eating the fruit, she sins in intention, in the will, in the will by falling away in her desire for a relationship with God. So because the commandment has become detached from relationship with God, it is easily subverted once the consequences are minimized. So he see his next move. You will not certainly die, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. The knowledge of good and evil here, I think it's important to note, should be understood as a knowledge that's divorced from intimacy with God. It's a true knowledge. It's not a false knowledge. But the valence of that knowledge has been changed. The direction, the orientation of the knowledge has been changed. Lots of people have talked, like Theodore Adorno, um, who is a, a part of the Frankfurt uh, Critical School, uh, talked about the, 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 um, the perniciousness of instrumental rationality. Instrumental, instrumental rationality is rationality that is, that is about the organization of means without any reference to a specific end, right? The end has to be selected after the fact, right? Or the end is selected autonomously by the individual in question. And then rationality is applied to the managerial organization of the means to achieve that end, right? Which is incredibly pernicious. Because if you think about this, like Hitler was extraordinarily rational, right? 
He was extraordinarily rational in the organization of specific means to kill a whole lot of Jews and disabled people and gypsies, right, and gay people. And this is, this, is, uh, this is critical for us to understand. That's the kind of the knowledge of good and evil that Adam and Eve are now, uh, now have available to them, right? It's a knowledge that's divorced from intimacy with God. It's therefore a deeply dangerous knowledge, knowledge that is a lot more like dark magic and a lot less like the loving cultivation of the gifts of the creation. In other words, it's a knowledge that's detached from wisdom, The knowledge that's detached from wisdom, the Bible tells us, is what unleashes hell upon the earth. So banishment from the garden, banishment from the tree of life, is not just a punishment. It's a grace. Already in the banishment from the garden is a grace. I will not permit you to remain in this state eternally. I will heal you. That's the promise that's made whenever God banishes uh, Adam and Eve from the garden. Okay, um, any questions so far? Because I'm going to change gears. Okay, uh, Eve and Adam were created perfect. No. Right? So why did Eve uh, accede to the enemy's lies? No, I, I think it's wrong to, to say that they were created perfect. Because Perfe- perfection is something that... Uh, is, the, is, is um, the achievement of what is uh, possible within you, right? It's an achievement of a design that is possible within you. Um, but the way that Adam and Eve were created is with integrity, uprightness, the ability to choose between good and evil, right? The capacity to choose rightly, but also the capacity to choose wrongly because they're immature. They're immature in the garden. And so maturity would look like continual progress along the lines of perfection until they have arrived. But that the progress towards perfection is disrupted by the arrival of temptation and the succumbing to the, to the temptation. Yeah. Um, at least that is the way that this, the tradition has always described this. You can draw a straight line from Irenaeus to Maximus the Confessor in the 7th century, the 3rd through the 7th century. And this is the, this is the exclusive way of understanding how Adam and Eve are created in that framework. For me, that's completely dispositive. So, um, anybody else have any questions on what we talked about so far? Okay. I want to talk a little bit about what sin has done to us, who we have become as sinners. What are the consequences of sin unleashed upon the world? So sin, I think it's important for us to say, although it's not original, like to the creation, it's original to us. Like when we awaken to ourselves as moral beings, we discover immediately that we are people whose desires do not harmonize, and that we are incapable of being who we long to be and doing what we long to do. We have this ongoing sense of who we ought to be, this sense that we are called to something more than our basis desires, yet we cannot achieve it. We're not just passive agents of entropy either. It's not like we're just driven along by sin or helplessly driven by the powers outside of us. It's that we both desire to do the good and to do its opposite at the exact same time. We have a divided will. So how many of you have read uh, the Kristen Labrinsdatter uh, trilogy by Sigrid Unset? It's apparently, I, I think this is kind of funny. You, you read part of it? You know what I'm talking about, though. That's right. Yeah, it's a little heavy. 14th century historical fiction, you know, and uh, 
in a, well, I forget where it is, Norway. Um, anyway, uh, but uh, it, it's apparently the most famous Norwe- or Norwegian novel of the 20th century or something like that. But anyway, I've never, I'd never heard of it until I read this article. Um, so I picked it up immediately afterwards, though, because it, it's, uh, it's amazing insight into the human condition. So Christian Laversdatter, who's the protagonist of this trilogy that bears her name, says this, All of my days I have longed equally to travel the right road and to take my own errant path. She expresses that divide, fundamental dividedness of the human will. So Haley Stewart's commentary on this passage is that the human soul struggle to follow its own disordered will instead of aligning it with its loving creators is the universal tale, mirrored a thousand times in good literature. It's the human story, right? Whatever, whatever like the subject matter of the story, like the point of the story is always this. It's this struggle to follow our own will and to align our will with the loving creator at the same time. So under the conditions of sin, the first thing we can say is that our desires have literally become diabolical because that word in Greek, dia plus balas, means to drive apart. Our wills have been driven apart, right? Our desires have been driven apart. There's a fundamental disharmony and chaos and double-mindedness that we feel at work inside of ourselves. And that is fundamentally what it means to be a sinner. The Christian tradition has almost universally expressed this dividedness as a kind of contraction or shriveling of the soul from its original expansiveness or liberality. Jonathan Edwards puts it like this, Sin, like some powerful astringent, contracts the soul to the very small dimensions of selfishness. And we begin to love ourselves above all, to use and to instrumentalize and oppress others to get what we want and to despise our Creator for placing limits upon our desires. And when we awaken to moral experience, we discover that we are truly helpless against this contraction of our soul and the tyranny of sin within ourselves. We both love it and hate it at the same time. So maybe the best description of the ongoing effects of sin in our hearts I've ever read is by a guy named Francis Spufford. Anybody here read Unapologetic? Yes. So you know what I'm about to talk about, right? Yes. Right. Absolutely. Well, I'm not going to use the language that he uses because it's a little off color. But it's, it's really helpful, okay? He, he diagnoses us in our ongoing, the ongoing dominion of sin in our hearts uh, as what he calls the human propensity to mess things up. You can become imaginative in your own substitution of words for what he actually says. So this, this, uh, this tendency within us, this native tendency within us, seems like it creates us for tragedy or even farce because our desires are pitted against one another. And the lesser desires constantly subvert the greater desires. He says this, I think this is, Like, this is incredibly powerful. He says, Our appointment with realization often comes at one of the classic moments of adult failure. When a marriage ends, when a career stalls or crumbles, when a relationship fades away with a child seen only on Saturdays, when the supposedly recreational coke habit turns out to be exercising veto powers over every other hope and dream. It need not be dramatic, though. It can equally well just be the drifting into place of one more pleasant, indistinguishable little atom of wasted time, one more morning like all the others, which quietly discloses you to yourself. You're lying in the bath, and you notice that you're 39, and you don't have any children, and that the way that you're living bears scarcely any resemblance to what you think you've always wanted. Yet you got here by choice, by a long series of choices for things which at any moment temporarily outbid the things you say you wanted most. And as the water cools 
In the light of Saturday morning and summer ripples heartlessly on the bathroom ceiling, you glimpse an unflattering vision of yourself as a being whose wants make no sense, don't harmonize, whose desires deep down are discordantly arranged so that you truly want to possess and you truly want not to at the very same time. You're equipped, you realize, for farce or even tragedy more than you are for happy endings. The human propensity to mess things up, again, substitute your own imaginative language there, dawns on you. You have indeed messed things up. Of course you have. You're human, and that's where we live. That's our normal experience. Oh, it's so gut-wrenching because it's so true. There's a fundamental helplessness and dividedness that we experience in the encounter with sin. And this results in a kind of despair, right? A despair that makes us think, well, I love this thing that I know is base, and so I may as well give myself to it. And so in the searing of consciousness that happens with the continual giving of oneself to it, we become petty. We become small. We give ourselves to mean and petty things. We give ourselves to wounding and destroying one another and ourselves and the creation. We come to think that the infinite and immortal longings that we experience are mere projections of the way we wish things were rather than the memories or echoes of who we were made to be. And therefore, the enthrallment or the enslavement to sin is not something that happens to us against our wills. It is a culpable slavery with which we willingly participate. As Plantinga puts it, it is a culpable disruption or vandalism of the shalom of God in us and those in whom we are in relationship with and with the creation. And more than that, we nurse our sins in the secret places of our hearts through a kind of warped maternal bond. That's Haley Stewart's language. I love that. A warped maternal bond. I'm describing the main character in Christian Laver's daughter. She says that, that for her character, her sins must be loved, fed, and nurtured, a twisted parody of a devoted mother's care for her child. The more we nurse sin in our hearts, the heavier its weight lies upon us, the more enslaved we feel, and the more, and more tyrannical its rulership is in us. We both love and we hate the sin that holds us in thrall. Mostly, though, we love our sin until we are exposed to its consequences, and we get this unflattering vision of ourselves revealed to ourselves by the consequences. And that causes even greater despair, right? Um... Yeah, and it's, it's for this sin, it is for this, this enslavement to sin and to the power of death that Christ became incarnate and for which the Trinity's rescue mission had to be set in motion. So sin is something that happens in our hearts, right? But it's also something that is social and ecological in its dimensions. And I want to talk about that for just a little while because I think it's something that conservative Christians usually overlook or minimize. Um, but it's not something that the ancient church minimized or overlooked. And so I think we need to recover the sense of the holistic nature of sin, the pervasive nature of sin, if we want to understand how extensive redemption has to be, how extensive redemption actually is. So if the original condition in which God created all things is shalom, and if shalom is a relationship of joy and delight and mutuality, which characterizes the entirety of creation, then the devastation wrought by sin also touches all of those relationships. 
It's hard to get at how exactly to express this totalizing character of the dominion of sin, which is, its con- which is the consequence. Uh, sorry, the dominion of sin and the death, which is its consequence. The springs of evil in the human heart quickly overflow their banks and go out into all the world. Sin, we might think of as a cancer which quickly metastasizes and affects and afflicts all of the creation. I mean, I think one of the best images that I've ever seen for sin is the nothing in the never-ending story. It's a little bit of an archaic reference, but if you haven't seen that movie, you need to go watch it, right? Or actually, even better, read the book. The nothing is, uh, is, is a, a force that swallows everything good. Uh, one of the characters in the movie, a, a wolf named Gamork, says, it's like a despair that's destroying this world. It just consumes everything. So sin is, is this rupture in the creation that corrupts and infects not just the affections of every human being. It's an event which echoes forth in history in billions upon billions of imitations of this original depraved rebellion against the Creator. It affects all of human relationships. It affects all of the creation. And Plantinga describes the narrative that goes from Genesis 3 to 11 as the progress of corruption. And he points out both the social and the environmental character of this progressive infestation. Every... Biblical sin, he says, rises in an ominous crescendo. It's not just Adam and Eve's juvenile pride and disbelief, which triggers disobedience and scapegoating and flight from God. The first child then extends his parents' trajectory, the logical next step in that trajectory, which is murder, right? Cain blames and then kills his brother Abel and launches this history of envy and fratricide all across human civilization. And then Cain becomes a fugitive. He becomes an exile in the land of wandering that lies east of Eden. And then there's Lamech's homicidal boast, right? If, if Cain is, is, uh, is, is avenged seven times, then Lamech will be avenged 77 times. And then at last there's this great flood in Genesis 7, which is, arises because of the terrible evil of civilization that civilization breeds. And this ter- it's a, the flood is this terrible consequence of evil filling the earth, obliterating, obliterating all that's good in God's creation. And so God, in judgment over it, obliterates the distinction between the water above and the ground below and floods the earth. The story of the fall tells us that sin corrupts. It puts asunder what God had joined together, and it joins together what God had put asunder. Like a devastating twister, Plantinga says. Corruption both explodes and implodes creation, pushing it back towards the, form, the formless void toward which it came. Sin is anti-creation. Human nature, as a result of sin, has been despoiled of its powers by, by, by original sin. The image that's suggested by despoilation is that of stripping, like stripping a tree of its bark or an animal of its hide or of an enemy army of its arms and provisions. It's that which makes the thing integral, has been stripped of it. Augustine identifies this disordering and this despoiling consequence of sin as the lust or the craving to dominate. That's the most basic expression of sin, he says. It's the desire to put all things in subjugation before the sovereign self and its disordered desires. It's to use our various faculties, right? The knowledge of good and evil that we have obtained 
through our forefathers. Our brute strength, our intellect, and our imaginations to manipulate and to coerce our environment and the others around us to serve our own disordered impulses, our own depraved desires. Beginning with that original sin in the garden, sin reaches out to possess and despoil the environment and those around us, unleashing this history of murder and envy and bloodshed and imperial conquest. I urge you to go and go back and read that sort of prehistory of Abraham, right? Genesis 3 through 11. Nimrod emerges in Genesis 10 as the first empire builder. He's a mighty warrior upon the earth. And he establishes the first centers of his kingdom in Babylon and Uruk and Akkad and Kalna and Shinar. He's a man of blood. He's a man who oppresses in order to unite. From that land, he goes on to Assyria where he built Nineveh and Rehoboth-ir and Kala and Resin, which is between Nineveh and Kala, which is the great city. The great city is never a good thing, by the way, in Scripture. You know what else is called the great city? Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. Not a great thing to be the great city. And this centralizing oppressive impulse culminates in what we might call the Pax Babylonia, right? It's kind of drawing upon the Pax Romana idea, right? The Pax Babylonia is a project. It's an imperial project to unite all peoples in a kind of subjugation. It's a unity that involves oppressive uniformity. That's what the project of Babel is. And it's represented by the tower, right? Now again, we've got to reach back into the ancient Near East to understand what is the context within which this tower makes sense, right? To us, it looks like maybe they're building a tower to raid heaven, right? We're going to steal autonomy back from God. I actually think Bartholomew and Gohan get this wrong. I don't think that's what this means. I think what this is, is a divine staircase. It's called a ziggurat. Lots of Mesopotamian civilizations built these. The ziggurat is a kind of stair step. It's not even a temple. It doesn't do anything. There's no, there's no cultic functions that are performed in it. It's literally just an enormous staircase which reaches to the heavens. So these ancient Mesopotamians who have engaged in this imperial project of bloodshed to unite peoples in a kind of artificial uniformity have built a divine staircase to the war god that the war god might descend and unleash the hell of war and bloodshed on the earth so that all might be brought into subjugation to the mastering oppressive logic of the empire. That is what's happening in Babel. Hey, guess who comes down the, living, comes down the staircase? It's the living God. It's Yahweh Elohim. He comes down the staircase and he disperses the peoples. He annuls the covenant with death that they have made. He undoes the imperial project of false uniformity. That's the end of that story. And then God says, it's going to happen a different way. It can't happen this way because the problem is too deep. The problem involves the heart. The heart spills over into social relationships. It spills over into environmental relationships. But you can't get at the source by dealing with the symptoms. So this social way of understanding the fall, this understanding of the fall is kind of issuing forth in these, these series of destructive interpersonal relationships in an imperial logic was really the most common way of understanding what Cyprian called, he's a third century church father from North Africa, the wounds of sin. Okay? So contrary to popular belief, right, sin is not this primarily personal thing for the church fathers. It is a social reality. It's a reality that, that results in the, the, the terrible inter, interrelationships between people, war and bloodshed and death and murder. So contrary to popular belief, for Augustine, sin is not primarily sexual. It's primarily social. Okay? 
he does spend time in the confessions talking about the sexual nature of sin, right? He talks about the refusal of our genitals to obey our wills, both in the cauldron or the fire of lust, but also like in impotence, right? So that's also evidence of sin, right? But then he says, that's not the chief way that sin manifests itself. The characteristic, characteristic way that sin manifests itself is in this lust or craving to dominate others, which is expressed in oppressive social relationships between people and between civilizations. This is critical. In, uh, in the city of God, Augustine understood Rome's grandeur merely as glittering vices. The vaunted Pax Romana is nothing other than a sullen retreat that has been forced by an almighty sword. Here's what he says. Think of the cost of this achievement. Consider the scale of those wars with all that slaughter of human beings, all the human blood that was shed. The Pax Romana was less to be celebrated than mourned, less to be regarded as the apogee of civilization than as an expression of the infinite cost of securing peace among the nations under the conditions of sin. The justice of the Roman state, he says, is little more than brigandry writ large, the imposition by invincible means of a kind of rapacity that's visible in miniature in the work of pirates. Check this out. Here's how he begins book four of the city of God. He says, remove justice and what are the kingdoms but gangs of criminals on a large scale? For it was a witty and truthful rejoinder which was given by a captured pirate to Alexander the Great, who was a, a Greek conqueror. The king asked this fellow, what is your idea in infesting this sea? And the pirate answered with uninhibited insolence, the same as yours in infesting the earth. But because I do it with a tiny craft, I'm called a pirate. Because you have a mighty navy, you're called an emperor. That's Augustine's assessment of the Pax Romana. Cyprian of Carthage, I just mentioned him. He's the one who gives us that language of the wounds of sin, which must be healed by the medicine of immortality. Jesus Christ and him present in the Eucharist. When he's one of Augustine's heroes, too. And he mirrors this equation of empire and piracy. Despite all of its pomp and all of its splendor, the empire is nothing more than a bloodthirsty band of pirates with the power to impose its will universally rather than merely parochially. Consider the roads, he says, blocked up by robbers, the seas beset with pirates, wars scattered all over the earth with the bloody horror of camps. The whole world is wet with mutual blood. And murder, which in the case of an individual is admitted to be a crime, is called a virtue when it is committed wholesale. Impunity is claimed for the wicked deeds, not on the plea that they are guiltless, but because the cruelty is, perpetuated, is perpetrated on a grand scale. Okay, this is how the church fathers understand the wounds of sin. They're social, not just personal. And of course, this does not mean, I want to make this clear, that Augustine and Cyprian were mere anarchists or that they were somehow ungrateful for the safety that was created by the fierce maintenance of the Roman Empire. They commend at various points in their ministry submission to lawful authority, right? Just as Paul and Peter do in the Bible. But rather, their imaginations were fired by the justice and the shalom of God, that which was original to the creation, and the goodness and the peaceability of his kingdom, over and against which the city of man, maintained by the sword, looked tawdry and flimsy and phony, and most of all, soaked with sin and sweat and blood and tears. That is what they rejected. Because the kingdom was so much more beautiful, gorgeous, enrapturing than that. And they saw further evidence of the departure of contemporary societies and civilizations from the norm established in the creation in the presence of slavery. This is articulated most powerfully in Gregory of Nyssa and in Augustine. 
The lust to dominate could find no greater expression than in the punitive ownership of one rational creature by another. Dominion was given over the lower orders of the creation, Augustine protests, not over other humans that were created as equals. The just social order that reflects the creation, Augustine says, is prescribed by the order of nature. And it is in this situation that God created man. For he says, let him have lordship over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and all the reptiles that crawl on the earth. He did not wish the rational being made in his own image to have dominion over any but irrational creatures. Not man over man, but man over beasts. Okay? Unless we think slavery is something of the past, something that we rational and enlightened people in the 21st century have overcome, the legal scholar Louis Shelley points out that there are currently more slaves in the world today than at any point in, the, in human history. And that, even though for the first time in human history, slavery is almost universally criminalized. Fathom that. Globalization, while fostering many important social and economic connections across the globe, has at the same time fostered human trafficking and sexual exploitation and bonded labor on a scale that's unimaginable in human history. These things go on, right? These patterns replay themselves over and over again like some dark and demonic twisted circle. And sin leads us also to despoil the environment, right? It is a personal an interpersonal, interpersonal and ecological reality. It leads us to despoil the environment, not thinking about the generations after us, not thinking about the fragile interconnections of the ecosystem, but rather privileging human desire, present human desire above all. And evidence of sin can be found as well in the withdrawal of human interest and marvel in the creation. It's important, I think, to note that part of Solomon's internationally renowned wisdom was that he was well-informed about the created order, right? He knew all about trees, the cedars of Lebanon, to the hyssop that grows in the wall. And he knows all about animals, birds, and reptiles, and fish. Craig Bartholomew has a magnificent book, so that one of the authors of this book that we're reading, has a magnificent book called Where Mortals Dwell, which is a theology of place. Uh, and, he's, and he draws attention to how acutely the scriptures are concerned to stress God's concern with birds. Right? This little detail of the creation but God is immensely concerned with it. He says this, Multiple passages, especially in the Psalter, speak of God's concern for birds. And significantly, a regular feature of judgment upon a place, especially in Jeremiah, is the absence of birds in birdsong. If sin empties the skies, then the kingdom will ultimately bring harmony to the creation, in which even the birds of the sky will dwell at peace. The ecotopia of Isaiah 9-11, through 11, that's the future towards which we are rushing. It's the, the, the wholeness and the integrity of the creation being sewn back together, being put back together in only the way that God can do it, right? Human beings are not capable of doing this by ourselves. All we get are signposts, little flares that go up to show us, hey, this kingdom is coming. So the last point that I want to make, and then we have a little bit of time for, um, for Q&A and then table discussion, is that if sin is not the beginning, it's also not the end. If the genie of sin cannot be put back into the bottle, if the effects of sin that echo through the ages cannot be unwritten, they can at least be turned to the purposes of God in Christ. All things may indeed be reconciled to the Father. And in that sense, as Sam Gamgee put it, everything sad can come untrue. Christians believe that in the beginning was perfect peace. 
Before anything was, God is. And God is love. Perfect relationship of triune devotion, service, mutuality, fulfillment, delight. Because the love of the triune God is the source and the foundation of all it is, and because God did not create from any lack, but rather from the desire to share in the superabundance of his love that interpenetrates the persons of the Trinity, creation was and is saturated by the goodness of God. The Orthodox Demetrius Stanilo daringly glosses John's comment that whoever does not, does not love does not know God because God is love by saying this, in the beginning, God was, God, sorry, in the beginning was love, right? In the beginning is the Trinity. In the beginning was love. So even under the conditions of sin, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. That's what Psalm 19 says. The design, the harmony, the fittingness of the created order reveals its saturation with divine wisdom. It's pregnant with divine wisdom. Proverbs says this, The divine wisdom brought forth as, it was brought forth as the first of the Lord's works. It was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and he fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundaries so the waters would not overstep his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth. It's Proverbs 8. He likens God to a master craftsman who uses wisdom to create the order and who saturates that created order with his wisdom. Indeed, when Paul describes Christ and his cosmic dimensions, right, what does he say? Christ the wisdom and the power of God. The word that created all things is that wisdom, expresses that wisdom in the creation of all things. It's good. It's good. New Testament authors are super clear about this, that the, that the thing that, that God is doing in Christ is reconciling the wise creation that he made to himself and bringing human beings who are meant to be the apogee of that, of that creation to wisdom. Because the harmony and the love of the triune God are the source and the foundation of everything that is, it is also the end of all things. All shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. The harmony in which God created all things is the future of all things. Perhaps this is what most differentiates the Christian story from all other ancient and modern stories about the world, which are marked by what John Milbank calls an ontology of violence. Violence is what is original. Hostility, mutual agony, that's what is original in all of these stories. What drives, human, what drives history is wickedness. What drives history is conflict, violence, oppression. And in these stories, all things originate in violence and conflict, and that's where they're going. There are moments of brilliance in which through great acts of heroic sacrifice, love and peace among the peoples and the nations of the world can be established. But history is finally tragic because the end's going to be exactly like the beginning. Our end, as Nicholas Lash puts it, is exhaustion on a corpse-strewn battlefield. That's the end of all the ancient and the modern stories. Exhaustion on a corpse-strewn battlefield. But the Christian story is different. The source and the foundation of all things is love. Because the heart of reality is the burning love of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And out of that overwhelming and superabundant love has come into existence everything that is. Because of the powers of sin and death, 
have been unleashed upon this world. There is great suffering. History is filled with cruel rapacity and oppression and the selfishness of human beings. And there is no limit to the evil things that we will do to one another. There is no end to the unfeelingness that we will have towards one another, the indifference that we will express towards one another, and the rest of creation that dramatically exacerbates the consequences of purely natural phenomena. Like, will there be tsunamis and earthquakes in the new heavens and the new earth? I have no, I have no way of knowing. I don't know the answer to that question. Neither do you. But guess what? If there are, we will have so organized things that, that the, the consequences of that will be eliminated. There will not be human death that emerges from these things. But under the conditions of sin, we have organized reality such that maximal effect is had. And yet the end must be like the beginning. It will be so because God refuses to have it any other way. In the end, the love of Christ, which reconciles us to the Father, will win because death has no more dominion over Jesus Christ, and he is making all things new. The destiny of the created order, therefore, is reconciliation with God in Christ. And the church is the community that is marked out as the ambassadors of this reconciliation. It's the task that has been placed upon us to be people who, by grace, are overcoming the lust to dominate within ourselves. Indeed, practicing this by mortifying and putting to death through the power of the cross and the resurrection the seeds of destruction that are within us so that we can represent this coming kingdom to the world. So that's all that I've got. Um, I, I want to... Um, yeah, sorry. That's kind of a lot. But if there are, uh, <laughs> if there are any questions, uh, I'd be happy to take them now. Uh, I mean, if they're not any, then we can go straight to table discussion. But, um, but if there are questions, I'd love to... I'm available. Yeah, Beth, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, because Christ is so. Here's here's what here's what we have to say about the Trinity. The Trinity is is um, simultaneously a mystery that is too complex and too profound for words, and also something that we have some revelation and inclination of in, in or intimation of in the scriptures themselves. So we use the language of the divine scriptures, right? Um, and so when the scriptures make the attribution, the New Testament makes the attribution of wisdom to God. It makes it in the person of the Son. Right? Not in the person of the Spirit. So one of the central maxims of Trinitarian theology is every external work of the Trinity is undivided. So, that, so Father, Son, and Holy Spirit do everything together. There's no, there's no sense in which Christ is exclusively the wisdom of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit operate in creation to make creation wise. Right? And the, the, the um, attribute of wisdom is appropriated, that's the language in the tradition, is appropriated to the Son. So we can speak of the Son is in an especial way as being the wisdom of God. Right? Yeah, I, I, I know. That, that, that's the best I can do, because it's, re it's really like, it's, it, this is a mystery that is too great for words. But I think when we, when we look at, we're on safer ground when we say, yes, the wisdom of God is the Son of God. Yes. How do we understand that? I mean, if God, you know, God in the beginning, Trinitarian love, love between Father, Son, Holy Spirit, love, where, where does the room happen for the crack 
How does it happen? Right. Was able to happen. Yeah. The possibility of the fracture line is in the space between infinite and finite reality. So the angels are part of created reality, which means the possibility of failure, evidently, we know by consequence, right? Not by a priori knowledge, we know by effect, is a possibility within that created order. So how it was exactly that the angels fell, it's always a matter of imaginative reconstruction, right? It's always saying, maybe it was like this, maybe it was like that, right? I mean, again, Milton, right? But I mean, you know, have you read The Silmarillion? Have you read The Silmarillion? Uh, I haven't. It's on my, my shelf, baby. Yeah. Well, I, I, should, I should have Joel Scandrett here to, like, basically, like, recite the thing to you. But there's, a, there's an account of the defection of, of uh, the, the original, one of the original gods, right? Um, uh, that involves music. Like there's, an amu- there's, a, there's a, mu- a music that's originally sung, and this this god thinks he's very clever, and so introduces his own notes into it, and then it it spills over into this corrupting effect. So that's like I think it's actually Tolkien's gloss on the fall, right? The angelic fall that precedes the human fall. Um, but I think the crucial point to notice here, right, is that there is this distinction between infinite and finite reality. And finite reality is something that creates within itself, or has within itself, the potency to change. And change can be good or bad, right? So, we, so there's hopefulness in change as well, right? That we might change progressively into, into eternity for the better, right? More and more transformed into the measure and stature of Christ. And likewise, there's a possibility of eternal change for the worse, right? Eternal falling away, right? Um, so, so I think that's the, cru- the critical point to notice. No. No, I mean, those, those who are, are actually in Christ Jesus will progress uh, from, its, from, uh, from perfection to perfection, from glory to glory, right, as Paul says. Uh, there is no possibility of defection because our wills will be so aligned with his. We will have such a profound and, and, and uh, tremendous vision of him. We'll be so, actually, uh, the, the language in the Orthodox tradition, as you know, is we will be deified. Uh, and that means not that we will be made God, like capital G, but that we will be so transformed by the divine humanity of Christ that we will be caught up into the divine life. And that's a different status than, we, than, any, than any point in this uh, earth below that we've, we've ever experienced, right? So it's a different, it's a different order of things. Um, and yeah, so the, the, the possibility of future defection, eternal defection, is not there. Um, nowhere is that countenance. However... Uh, you know the the opposite. Uh, I can't I can't say that uh, you know for all of eternity there is no possibility of a turning away from evil back towards God. I mean I I, I think about the sort of like echoes and, and resonances in Scripture where like you know in, in Revelation chapter twenty one the gates of the heavenly Jerusalem are always open. There's always an invitation it seems to me, uh, and that uh, you know like it, Paul talks about. In 1 Corinthians 15, this odd practice of baptizing for the dead, right? The resurrection is not true. Why do you baptize for the dead? And it's like, he's not condemning that practice. 
He's just acknowledging its reality among certain Corinthian Christians. Um, so there seems to be a kind of, you know, it's not, it's not articulated explicitly, but there's a kind of, it seems like there's a kind of hope on the margins, right, for uh, the possibility of a, of a future encounter with Christ. And again, again, if you look through the tradition, it's, it, there's like all of these imaginative um, de- de- depictions of people who did not know Christ or did not encounter Christ truthfully uh, in this age, who encounter him in the life to come, and they repent, right? And uh, in one of them, uh, it's called the Vision of St. Paul in the third century. Uh, these people are baptized in this specific lake. I forget what it's called. Uh, and by the, by the uh, Archangel Michael, you know, odd stuff, right? I mean, I, I can't make heads or tails of any of this. And so, you know, this is Jonathan, not the Lord speaking, right? I mean, but I mean, it's, uh, it's my, own, my own hope that, uh, that you know, that, that the, the world to come will be more like what C.S. Lewis describes it in The, in the Great Divorce than, um, than the way it's been described in some of the more fundamentalist accounts. Any other? Yeah. The great city? Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it sounded to me like you were saying cities were bad, evil places. Okay. No. I don't think that's probably what you mean. Not what I meant. Okay. Um, I, the only point that I was making there is that the great city is, all, is never a good thing in Scripture. Like, if you're the great city, that's not, that's not a good thing to be. Like, that's to be Nineveh, right? That's to be the, that's to be the city that's the seat of the enemy of the people of God. Um, but the, the idea of the city itself uh, in Scripture is a, a complicated um, reality. There's a great book, by the way. You'd love this book, man, uh, by Jacques Ellul called the, uh, the Meaning of the City. Have you read that one? Uh, I think so. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I think, a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. Well, Ellul's point is that in Scripture, cities are, are like, they're composite things, right? They contain all that's amazing in human civilization. That's there also in the early chapters of Genesis, right? Like, you know, Tubal Cain is the, is the, the forefather of all those who play musical instruments and like there's all this, this, this uh, craft around bronze and all this other stuff that develops in the context of cities. So all of that human culture is stuff that can be redeemed. It's part of, it's, they're part of the stones of the New Jerusalem, as it were, right? Um, and yet, like cities are also repositories of the worst that human beings can do to one another, right? The worst that human beings can do to the creation. Um, so they're, they're an, absolutely an ambivalent reality. Um, you know, I, I've lived my entire adult life in cities. I love cities, you know? I think that's where God has called me to you know, be an agent of redemption. But, um, but I recognize as well that, like, that there's a concentration of evil here that can't happen anywhere else. So that's, that's the point. Definitely, yeah. Um, I mean, I think I did, did I not say that sin is like a cancer. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's a reference that's been made, like or a connection that's been made a lot. I mean, it does it um, like the 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 sort of aggressiveness, metastasis, like all of those uh, characteristics. What's that? Destructiveness, right? Despoiliation, right? Like how it? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. It's a it's a, a incredible um, analog or metaphor for sin. It's a good thought. Anyone else? Or should we turn to table discussion?